We are starting 2 Thessalonians. If you're new to these two books, I'll catch you up real quick. You can look at the foundation of the church at Thessalonica in Acts 17. Paul shows up, starts preaching. He preaches for about three weeks, and then he is run out of town. The church is established in those three weeks, but think about that if you're in that town. Imagine here in Grant's Pass, there's a pastor that comes in, he starts a church, it lasts three weeks, and then he's run out of town. In our local paper, the Daily Discourager writes an article on it. <laughs> and there'd be a cloud over it, right? The county commissioners ran out this pastor, and there's a, still a church there. So he knows, because of the way he was run out, there's this cloud over this community of believers now in this little city. So he's worried about them. So he sends back, he's in Athens, he sends back Timothy. Hey, go check it out there. Go check this out. So Timothy goes, and then he comes back, and Timothy says, hey, they're doing pretty good under the circumstances, three weeks in this cloud, but they have some questions. And so Paul gets the questions, and he writes, First Thessalonians, to answer some of their questions. Because they had these worries like that they had been left behind, that somehow they were junior varsity Christians. And because they were JV, Jesus didn't take them. So they were worried about that. They had this kind of messed up eschatology. That's why in that book, each of the first four chapters ends with the return of Jesus. It's Paul Henry. Hey, you didn't miss out. The second issue really hit in chapter four is Thessalonica was a, it was called a festival city, which modern would be, it's Las Vegas. Do shady things happen in Las Vegas? Someone said that to me once, I'm not sure, right? So they had that kind of undercurrent as a culture. So people would be coming into the church on Sunday and praising Jesus, and on Friday they're out clubbing. So there was this mixture that, they hadn't quite got the message that we're to be in this world, but not of this world. So that's all for Thessalonians. So what happens is they receive this letter and they respond to it. But their response is fatalistic. So now they're like, well, you know, Jesus is going to come back any time. And since he's going to come back any time, nothing matters. I'm going to max up my credit card. I'm gonna take that car and have giant payments on it. I'm gonna quit my job. I'm not gonna work anymore, which is not what Paul wanted. So that prompts now 2 Thessalonians to, to fix the problem that 1 Thessalonians had kind of caused. I'll tell you, as a teacher of God's word, I love that. Because there are times that I feel like I preach an inspired message. And then after I preach that inspired message and I hit a home run with it, someone will come up to me and say something that is completely opposite what I just preached. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Were you on your phone the whole time? Because that is not what I was talking about, right? You preach on the gospel of grace and what God has done for us. And then someone comes up and is like, man, I'm trying really hard to get into heaven. Just don't know if I'm gonna make it. Oh, I just wanna strangle you, right? So Paul had the same problem. He writes an inspired letter. 
truly inspired letter. And the way that people receive it is not exactly what was supposed to happen. Man, that just totally blesses my heart because it can happen, right? So 2 Thessalonians has this marker in it and it's hope. Chapter one is hope in difficulty. Chapter two is hope in Jesus and it's, uh, and it, it's this already not yetness. Have you heard that phrase? So for me, prophecy in the Bible is that phrase. It's already, but not yet, right? The kingdom is here right now, but is the kingdom completely come? No, it's already in the infancy, in the germination state, but one day it will be completed when the king returns. So there's an already not yetness to Jesus's presence in his power, right? Jesus has defeated death, but we still see people die. Why? Because it's already, but not yet. So that's chapter two, hope in Jesus, the already not yetness of that. And we'll look at that next week. And the final chapter is hope in God who is faithful. And then the application is, so you be faithful. Literally go back to work. That's where we get that. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's because of this mentality that crept into them. Jesus is coming back. We don't have to do anything. No, 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 no. If you don't work, you don't eat. Like it's that immediate. You're not getting dinner if you didn't eat that day. So brilliant book. Let's jump in. Verse one. Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These three guys, Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy, are together for a very long time. Like it becomes this crew. I love that. I was just thinking about Mark. I told Mark when he got done leading, I'm like, just like the old days. And Paul said, or Paul, Mark said, they're all old days now to me. <laughs> Right? I'm so glad to have served with Mark for 16 years. Like that just is brilliant to me. Like it amazes me. I've tried to run him off multiple times, but he just, he loves you guys too much. It's so good to have a crew that you can run with year after year after year after year. It's awesome. And who's this letter written to? To pastors, to leaders, to elders, to teachers? to the church. I love that. The business world has a pyramid mentality, right? Top dudes are the most important, then you're down. They have a PhD. The PhDs are important. Not in God's family. God loves all his kids the same way. It's the church. It reminds me of Dwight Eisenhower's mother, he was president back in the 50s, and she had five sons. And one time the press came to her while Dwight Eisenhower is president, and they asked her, are you proud of your son? And she responded, which one? I'm proud of all my boys. That's what God says. Which one? I'm proud of all my sons, all my daughters. It's to the church, broad, because it, there's no pyramid 
at the base of the cross. It is level. We all come the same way to Jesus Christ. We're beggars in search of bread. That's what we are, level. Now there is division of labor, right? There are different gifts in the body. Praise God for that. So 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, give kind of a overview. Hey, there's different body parts. You need these different body parts. It's the way things work. Like for some people to be up here doing what I'm doing would be the most terrifying experience in their life. They would never want to do this. I can understand that because the class I hated the most in high school, guess what it was? Speech class. I loved calculus. I loved physics. I loved chemistry. I could not take speech class. I hated it. On speech day, when I was supposed to give a speech, I prayed like Billy Graham. I prayed for a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, a fire. I did not care anything that would keep me from coming up and giving a speech. So I get that. But we need like the diversity of gifts. Just people doing what God has gifted them in every avenue of life. I talked to a guy after church on Sunday. He just amazed me. Um, I've talked to him a number of times and he goes, man, we had this young couple that had this property, like they had kind of gotten it through whatever, an inheritance or something, and it was kind of landlocked. And so the couple had gone, this young couple had gone to all the neighbors and asked for an easement to get in. And everyone had said no. And this week they knocked on his door. Hey, we're this couple. We have this piece of land behind you. Can we have an easement through your property? Now, if you own property, you know this. You don't want an easement through your property. You don't want people driving by you. You don't want that, right? It actually devalues your property. There's nothing good in it for you. So this man just said, well, let me talk to my wife. So he and his wife talked and they prayed about it. And they just felt like we're supposed to give this couple an easement through our property. And so the next whatever day, the guy came back and he told him that. He goes, really? I thought for sure you're going to say no. Why'd you say yes? He said, because I prayed about it and Jesus loves you and I want to love you in the same way. I tell you what, that's how Grant's Passage changed. That's how it's changed. It's people like that. People that, now I'm not saying that you should give an easement to people. Don't get me wrong. That's between you and God. I'm just saying this guy is brilliant. I don't know if I would. He just amazed me. Like that is, a, that is the most powerful sermon that couple will ever hear. Better than any sermon I could preach, what you did right there. I love talking to this guy, his name is Joel Snow. If you don't know Joel Snow, Joel Snow is one of those amazing people because he just, he leaves his house in the morning and he just walks. And then he has these God appointments all over the place. He was telling me this one time that he left his house one morning, he's walking and he walked by this liquor store that was closed. And there was this guy that was waiting for the liquor store to open. And he kind of walked by him and goes, hi. And the guy says, oh man, I am hungover. The only cure for a hangover is another drink. And so Joel Snow went, well, actually, there's a better cure. He goes, I've been clean for 35 years. And he told him his whole testimony, which is a long testimony. And Joel Snow can talk. So he leaves there. And it was when Three Rivers was still open. He went over there. He went into Three Rivers, just went in the chapel and started praying. And there was this couple that kind of walked by and saw him in there praying. And they must have assumed he was praying for someone that he knew in there. And they're like, hey, can we join you and pray? He's like, oh, sure. So they join him and he's praying. And he's not praying for anyone in particular. And they're like, who, who are you praying for? He goes, oh, just everybody in here. I don't have anyone in here. They're like, are you serious? Are you an angel or something? Like, what in the world? So he leaves there and he's walking home. And he goes by the liquor store. It's open now. 
So he popped his head and he kind of looks around and the clerk was like, hey, uh, can I help you? He's like, well, I haven't been in one of these places for 35 years, so I was just wondering what they look like now. And the guy's like, well, what? Why haven't you been in here for 35 years? He goes, well, let me tell you. <laughs> and the guy's like, did you talk to a drunk earlier? Because there came in a really confused guy this morning. It just amazes me. And he goes, man, Matt, I would hate to do your job. I said, man, you do a job that I could never do. You're amazing. We need that. It's to the body because it's the body that matters. I've said this before. Maybe you were here when I said it, but church is halftime and halftime matters. Sometimes games are changed because of halftime. You come in at halftime to relax and to rest and to maybe get a bandaged up wound or whatever it is, or get a new play or kind of learn the enemy and what their defense is. Halftime matters, but it's not the game. The game is played like a property owner who says to a young couple, you can have an easement because Jesus loves you. It's played when Joel Snow walks around and shares his testimony and goes into the chapel and prays. That's where the game is played. It's outside of these walls. That's why this book is not written to pastors or to elders. It's written to the church because we need the church out there doing it. And one final note on this, just a classic opening for Paul, but he has something here. And if you're a student of scripture, you know this. One of the ways that you study the Bible is you look for repeated words or phrases. Did you see a repeated phrase? It's almost identical. So verse one, in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse two, from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that in there twice? These are scrolls. You did not waste room. You didn't waste words. Why? Because this church was going to face tough times and they needed to know two things. They had a God who was their father who cared for them. And they need to know there is a Lord, there is a King Jesus who is on the throne. When you and I go through difficulty and tribulation and money or sickness, we need to remember we have a father who loves us and cares for us. And we have a king who is in charge and none of this surprises us. That's what they're being reminded of right here. So he greets them and he gives thanks for them. Verse two. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for me, for one another, excuse me, is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul's amazed by two things. First, he says, your faith that is growing abundantly. It's a Greek word, hyperaxonai. It's the only place it's used in scripture. It literally would be a kid's word like super duper. Your faith is growing super duper. That interests me. When I think about faith, do I think about faith growing or do I think it more like a static thing? Like that guy lost his faith. Like it's almost like you, you have something, like you lost your keys. That person lost their faith or you have faith or you don't have faith. I don't think so. I don't think faith is static at all. I think faith is dynamic, that it's supposed to be growing and moving and developing. Now, how does your faith grow? How do we have hyper faith? 
Is it by accumulating more facts and knowledge as important as those are? I don't think so. Myron, my eight-year-old, he knows the Bible pretty good. I might know a little bit more about the Bible than him, but I'll tell you what, he's got great faith. His faith puts me to shame sometimes. The way he prays and the way that he thinks, you just say, that is hyper axonite. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's knowledge necessarily. Not that knowledge is bad, but I don't think that's the key. There are two times in scripture that Jesus marvels at people's faith. It's in the Greek, it's mega faith, mega pista. And Matthew chapter eight is one example. A centurion comes to Jesus. Centurions were the backbone of the Roman empire. The salt of the earth, the hardworking dudes, they were it. And he has a servant that's sick and he comes to Jesus and says, hey, could you heal my servant? And Jesus says, sure, I'll go with you. And the centurion says, no, no, you don't need to come with me. I'm a man that understands authority. If I tell a servant to go do something, he's gonna go do it because I have authority. And I understand you have that kind of authority. And Jesus, it says, marveled at his great faith. And his servant was healed. Now, did the Pharisees know more than a centurion about the Lord? Absolutely. Did the scribes know more? Yeah. But Jesus never marveled at their faith. The second event is Matthew chapter 15. It's a Canaanite woman whose daughter is sick. She comes to Jesus and she goes, son of David, have mercy on me. Would you heal my daughter? And Jesus calls her on that because she's a Canaanite. Son of David means nothing to her. It's a term that would only mean something to someone that was Jewish. So she's using a religious kind of lingo that she had heard, but it didn't fit her. It'd be like somebody that's smoking crack and talking about praising the Lord. You'd be like, bro, that doesn't fit right now. What you're doing doesn't fit your words. And so Jesus calls her on the carpet on that. Oh, you want to talk theology? He says, okay, here's theology. I wasn't sent to any but the lost sheep of Israel. Her response is, yeah, that's true but even the dogs get the crumbs from a master's table. And Jesus says, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Your daughter is healed. Now, what do both of those stories have in common? Humility. The key mark in both of those stories, the centurion, I understand authority. I'm under authority, I get it. The Syrophoenician or the Canaanite woman, I get authority too, I get this. I'm just a dog, I get that. It's humility. Because arrogance and faith, arrogance and faith never fit. If I think I'm a team and God's so lucky to have me on his team and man, he made a good choice with me. That's not, there's no faith in that. Faith is built when we are humble, when we continue to have this awe that God would use us. Are you kidding? You use me? Me? It's King David when he is told, you're gonna have Messiah. What does he do? He goes, are you kidding? Me? I'm just a shepherd boy. It's that humility that brings great faith. Never lose the awe that the creator and sustainer of the universe would choose to use you and me. That's where great faith comes from. That's number one, he marvels at their faith. Number two, it says he boasts about them. So he goes, I boast about you guys. So Paul is in other churches and he's boasting about the church at Thessalonica. It kind of cracks me up. 
Because early on at Edgewater, this would happen to me where someone would come up after service and they would say, hey, uh, man, last week I was down at some church, whatever, down south, big church, whatever. And man, it was so awesome there. Such a great message, such great praise. It was just the best. I remember just sitting there thinking, oh, okay. Like, how do you respond to that? The only way I can maybe make you understand it would be this. If you had invited some people over for dinner and you had like hand-selected the vegetables out of your garden and you had picked the choicest piece of meat and you had marinated it and you cooked it the absolute best you possibly could and you served this meal and at the end of the meal, one of your guests say, man, if you want a really good meal, you should go to so-and-so's house. How would you feel about that? You'd be like, I want my food back now. Barf it out. You don't get that, right? Now, I, I, I've, I'm better now. Counseling has helped me. <laughs> I get it, you know, no problem. I, now it's like, praise God, man. We need good, strong churches everywhere. Hopefully they're in every single city, in every community. Absolutely. Edgewater's got to be what it's going to be, right? So no problem. I get it. So he's boasting on this church, but guess what he's boasting about? How great the worship was? How awesome the music was? How beautiful the building was? Here's his boast how they're handling hardship. I'm not sure I want that boast. Man, that church can take it on the chin and they take it on the chin and they take it on the chin. The true test of your faith is hardship. And, but in this, here's what has happened to them. Because of the hardship that had happened to them over the past between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, because of hardship, here's what happened. If you compare the opening of 1 Thessalonians to the opening of 2 Thessalonians, chapter one, verse three, in both of them, Paul talks about love and faith and hope in the church in 1 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, right here, verse three, he talks about love and faith. And guess what he leaves out? Hope. What had happened to them over time is this. They had lost their hope. Now, why had they lost their hope? Verse four, because of hard times, all your persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. Anyone ever lose their hope because of persecutions and hardship? Just wave after wave after wave after wave. You just eventually are like, ah, oh, I can't take this anymore. First it was my health, then it was my job, then it was my marriage, then it was my kids, then it was someone got on drugs and it just, ah, oh, I can't take it anymore. You start to lose hope that there will be any change. And they had this hope because of 1 Thessalonians. They had this hope. They thought Jesus is gonna come back soon. Maybe today. And the days went by. Maybe this week. And the weeks went by. Maybe this month. And months went by. Maybe this year. And years went by. And Proverbs says, Proverbs 13, verse 12, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. They kept thinking, oh, Jesus, and he didn't. He's gonna end this difficulty. He's gonna end these persecutions. He's gonna end this affliction. And year after year, Jesus did not return. And they had lost their hope. And here's what happens when you lose hope. When you do not have hope in the future, you have no power in the present. Do you know that? Let's say your house was being foreclosed on. So you're gonna lose your house. Are you repainting it? 
Are you doing the honeydew list? Are you doing that remodel on it? No, because you have no hope for that house, so there's no power anymore. You don't put anything into it. When you have no hope in the future, you lose all the power in the present. You end up on your couch covered in Dorito crumbs and monster drinks, or worse. Or Greece 2,000 years ago, you end up covered in falafel and ambrosia or something, right? That's what had happened to them. That's why they weren't working. This was the problem. They had lost hope. So the rest of this book is how to reignite hope in a group of people that have lost it. And we get three ways in this chapter. And the three ways Paul's going to try to re-engage them with hope in the midst of their hardship is number one, justice, number two, hell, and number three, glory. And you're saying, how in the world do those help people with hope? Well, let's look at it. Verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Justice. Notice how powerful Paul's writing right here. When Jesus returns, there's gonna be vengeance. There's gonna be repaying with affliction those that afflict you, right? It's coming for them. Now, why does that lead to hope? Why would anyone put hope in that? Number one, it tells us this, that God sees what's happening in your life. When things are unfair, when things are not correct, when people are being unjust to you, God considers it, verse six says. He knows what's happening. He cares and he will repay, the Bible says. And you can take that to the bank. God knows, God sees, God cares. But secondly, this sets you free. Here's what I mean. Guess what every heart, every human heart is tuned to? Vengeance. Every human heart is tuned to that. We want life to be fair. We want an eye for an eye. We want a tooth for a tooth, right? All of us have that in us. Look at I should do this at some point. But over the last 70 years of TV, how many shows have been about that? Cop shows about, movies about, you know, things that were wrong are being made right. I mean, there's tons of them. Remember CSI? Like those exploded. There was CSI LA and CSI San Diego and CSI San Francisco and CSI Miami and CSI New York and CSI Hugo. Like it was amazing. It was everywhere. Why? Because we're tuned to that. We want justice. We want a just God. We want things to be made right. And if you don't want justice, that probably means you have not been hurt yet in life. And I pray that does not happen to you. Because when you have really been hurt, and your heart screams out for justice, and it starts early. 
Every group of kids playing outside. They're laughing, and then all of a sudden, there's crying. You go out there, you investigate, you say, what happened? He stole the ball from me. What did you do? I hit him. And what did you do? I kicked him back. And then what did you do? I tackled him. And then what did you do? I bit him. Okay, then what did you do? I'm going home and get my gun. Right? That's in us. It's Hatfield and McCoy's. It's vengeance. It's in us. We want things to be made right. But when we make them right on our own, it never makes it right. It just makes it hotter. That's all it does. So Miroslav Volf, a guy that lived through the ethnic cleansings in the Balkans in the 1990s, when families were slaughtered because of the wrong ethnicity. Maybe you remember that, Slobodan Milosevic. Brutal time. He writes about how he would be approached by a young man who had his whole family slaughtered. And he said, how would you talk a young man out of getting vengeance who just saw his whole family get slaughtered? What would you say to him? Violence never solved anything, man. Oh, that's not gonna help. Just turn the other cheek. That's not gonna help. Miroslav Volf said, the only way I could talk a young man out of vengeance is this, to say, there's a God who saw that and he will make it right. And you can trust in his vengeance. He'll repay. He'll bring affliction upon them. Trust God's justice. He said, that is the only way I could talk young people out of going and extracting their own vengeance. It was the only way. That's how you do it. This sets you free. I don't have to do that anymore. I can do what the Bible says. Don't, be, don't repay evil for evil, but rather repay evil with good. And that way you're not overcome by that evil because once you get vengeance in your heart, it grows and consumes you and it overcomes you and transforms you. Our hope is this. No matter how hard life is, no matter how unfair things have been, no matter how bad someone has been to you, our hope is this. There's a God who sees and he alone will make this right. And I'm trusting him. That's hope. That's number one. Number two, hell, look at verse nine. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You ever wonder what hell is gonna be like? Is it God like sticking pins in people and like poking them with pitchforks and like, what is it, right? In the New Testament, there's all these metaphors for hell. Gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, lake of fire. There's, there's all these metaphors and it's trying to get a point across a point. And I think the best verse in the Bible for hell is this verse right here. It's where I take people that have questions on hell. What's hell? It's this right here. It is eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's hell. It is the absence of God. So what is darkness? It's the absence of light. What is cold? It is the absence of heat. What is hell? It's the absence of God. Everything that's good, everything that's holy, everything that's right and pure 
and just and peaceful. All that, all that is God, if you pull that out in the vacuum that remains, that's hell. That's what this verse is saying. It's absence from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. That's hell. And know this about hell. It's what Jesus says. It's Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Jesus says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Hell was never created for humans. Humans were created, 2 Peter 3, 9, 2 Timothy 2, 4. All of us were created for salvation. That's what we were created for, to be saved, that God doesn't want one of us to perish. That's the Bible. We were created for salvation. Hell was created for these evil creatures called the devil and his angels. But here's the thing about hell. C.S. Lewis has a great book on it called The Great Divorce. It's like a metaphor. It's really brilliant. And what he says in that book is this. He says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. That in the end, there'll be two kinds of people. People number one, that say to God, thy will be done. People number two, that God says to them, thy will be done. Those are the only two kinds of people. That C.S. Lewis goes on to say, hell is not somewhere that you go. Hell is something that's inside of you, growing. And unless it is nipped in the bud, it will finally take you over and consume you. That's hell. I think those are really good ways to put it. And the way I put it to people is this. I think heaven for some people would be hell because something has grown in them for so many years that they hate God. I have talked to people that hate God. Well, in heaven, you're not going to be able to avoid him. So they won't want to be there. Something has grown in them and so consumed them, they don't want to go there. There's people that I've talked to that are so full of prejudice against certain kinds of people. Well, guess what heaven's going to be full of? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that for them, heaven would be hell. I don't want to be with those people because something has grown, a hatred has grown in them so large that they don't want to be there anymore. So it's them casting themselves away from God. They don't want to be in God's presence. They don't want to be around everything that is good and right. They hate it. That's what hell is. It'd be like, what would happen to earth if the sun went out? Well, it'd just become negative 273.15 degrees, right? It'd be utter cold. That's what happens. You take God out of everything and what's left in that vacuum is hell. Everything that's good, everything that's great, every gift is gone. Well, how does that bring us hope? Here's how it brings me hope. Jesus loved me so much that he went through hell so I never would have to. That's what the Bible says. Read Ephesians chapter four. Jesus went through hell so that you and I would never have to. Matt, I never want you to go there. I'm gonna take it for you. That's the love of God. That if God spared not his only son on my behalf, how shall he not with him give me all good things? That's my hope. No matter how hard the day is, I just know this. This is somehow good. I may not be able to explain it. I may not be able to give you all the equation for it, but I do know one thing. That if God spared not his only son, but let him go to hell on my behalf, how shall I not with him give me all good things? That he was excluded from the presence of everything that's good and holy, so I would never have to be. Man, let that sink into your heart. 
That's how much God loves us. That's hope. And the final third one, glory. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, glory. We have a present glory, but we also have a future glory. And both times in this little text, when it talks about glory, it says this, that he'll be glorified in you. It's not outside of us. It's in us. So it's not going to be like a theater where we're sitting back and we're watching something happen passively or a mirror where we're reflecting something. It's actually in us. The glory is going to be in us. It's going to be like this. If you took a light bulb filament, what happens when you electrify it? There's glory in it, right? All of a sudden, it, it glows, it's transformed. You and I, our future glory, you can't put words to it. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Read about what's going to happen to us when this mortal man puts off mortality and puts on immortality. C.S. Lewis said this, if we could see ourselves in our glorified beings, like a light bulb electrified, when the glory is in us, we would be tempted to worship each other as gods. We have no idea what's going to happen to us. It's in us because it's not outside of us. It's not like watching a theater or a, a, a mirror. It's going to transform in us. It becomes a part of us. We're made in his image. So people will ask me all the time, Matt, what's heaven like? What's eternity going to be like? I give them one word, more. Whatever you think it is, it's more. Words can't describe it. The Bible talks about one guy that made it up there, first, Second Corinthians chapter 12. And he just said, it's, I, could, I can't put it to words. Who that guy was? Maybe it was Paul. Seems like it is. He said, I can't put it to words. It's more. When the Bible tries to describe it, it's just using like metaphors because it's more. It'd be like this. If you went back to the Old Testament and you grabbed the 300 prophecies about Jesus and without the New Testament, you tried to tell what you thought Jesus was going to be like. Could you get the gospels right? No way. No, not even close because Jesus was more than those prophecies could ever possibly contain. That's eternity. It's gonna be more. The glory in you and me is going to be more. But also it says, right now, right now there's glory in us. And that glory is by Every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. There's a glory right now. We can glow like filaments. Maybe we're low power, low wattage. One day we'll be full wattage. But right now in our good works and our resolve to good and in, in the way that we do things through his power, there's glory. 
Maybe it's like this. I'll give you one story. So we used to take a lot of walks. My wife and I just took a walk today, reminding me of this story. And we'd have all of our kids with us and we'd be walking down the road and just fun. And this one time, it was probably 11 years ago, my daughter, Bella, she was seven or eight. She grabbed this plastic bag on the way out and I didn't even think anything of it. So we get down on the road. And then as we're walking down, she's going into the ditches and she's picking up trash and she's putting it in her bag. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't even ask her to do that. Every person we met on that trip, on that little walk, because other people walk, I'm like, look at my daughter. That was her idea. I didn't tell her to do that. She wanted to do that, right? There's glory in that. Now, there's plenty of other times that I say to my wife, what's wrong with your daughter? But that day, she was my daughter because there was glory. I want God to say, that's my son. That's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because right now, yeah, it's low wattage, no doubt. Right now, there's good works being done through his life by faith. That's what's happening. So Paul says, I'm gonna pray for you. I love that, verse 11. I'm gonna pray for you that our God may make, your, make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. You ever resolve for good and just not seen it happen? I have. So here's what I wanna do. I want to pray for you this week this simple verse. That tomorrow, God gives you the power to fulfill every resolve for good. I'm gonna ask you to pray for me that tomorrow and Friday and Saturday and this week, God would give me the power to do every resolve for good. Okay, is that a deal? And let's see what happens. So Jesus today, I pray for us, the Wednesday night crew. There's so many things that we want to do well. Be good dads, be good moms, be good husbands, be good wives, be good community leaders, be good neighbors, be good teachers, be good workers, be kind. There's so many resolves we have for good, and yet we find that there's no power. I pray today for myself and for every person in here, I pray that through faith in you, your power, your spirit, that we would see those resolves for good happening, that we would find ourselves in the current of your spirit, quickened, alivened, empowered to keep our resolves for good. So would you empower us even this night to be the dads we wanna be, the moms we wanna be, the grandpas and grandmas we wanna be, the neighbors we wanna be, the Christians that we want to be. Would you empower us? And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.